Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Lent Podcast. This week, Huawei has announced three new flagship phones as part of its P40 range. But without Google services, are they still worth considering? Pocket Lint Reviews editor Mike Lowe joins me to discuss the announcements. I chat to Spencer Hyman, the co-founder of online chocolate store Coco Runners, about how we can make discovering new products online easier and better. And Dan Grabham pops in to talk to me about the new Apple iPad Pro and how we've both been getting on with the new trackpad support feature that's been available on most iPads via the new iPadOS 13.4 software update out this week. So Mike, back to you. Uh, tell us more about the P40s. So this is a big launch for Huawei. Um, it's also a bit of an unusual one, given that in the last 12 months, it's kind of suffered um, bans in, in the States that allow it to not operate with um, Google services in the same way. So basically, Huawei's launched three phones. You've got the standard P40, then there's the P40 Pro and the P40 Pro Plus, not to be confused with the caffeine tablet supplement. Um, <laughs> and effectively, each one adds a camera, kind of box out the camera system, makes it um, that step better uh, in terms of zoom, um, which is great. And I've been using one of them, um, the, the pro model. Um, and I really liked like last year's model. I thought was amazing. This one, um, really interesting. But the problem it has is ultimately you can't use all of Google services. So if you need to sign in, say, to a game that you play and you use Google Play um, for that, it doesn't work here. So it's a little bit um, stuck and it's probably going to be quite a large problem for them trying to release these devices in Europe and getting much traction. And is that one, is it a problem or is it just that we're so used to using Gmail and Google Maps and uh, all that and Google Photos and all those kind of services that there just aren't alternatives out there that are as good or that you'd even consider using? I think it depends who it's aimed at. So, I mean, first up, you can use Gmail. So their, their client does operate um, Gmail just fine but then you can't use things like Google Backup. So you can't back up your WhatsApp messages. Um, you can get WhatsApp because you can download it through a browser as an APK, but who really wants to do that? It just adds complication. So Huawei's approach is they've got um, an alternative called App Gallery, which is their own sort of equivalent version of the Google Play Store. Um, it's been around for quite a while, but at the moment it's, it's, it's kind of young. Um, so it doesn't have a number of the core apps that you might see as a necessity for your for your setup um they're working with developers so there's certainly potential that in who knows six months 12 months 18 months way beyond that that actually it will more or less like for like mimic what google already does offer so right now yeah it is a problem uh, in the future that's a big question and we'll see what happens with it really and so for you that apart from the issues of, of google aside what is the cameras is it the cameras what's the standout kind of reason to go get this yeah so if i wind back a year the p30 pro came out and that for me was a real kind of landmark in um 
giving greater versatility to what cameras could do. It had wide angle of zoom. It kind of just pulled all that together before any other maker had done that. Um, things move fast though. So in the last year, we've seen a bunch of stuff from you know Apple, Oppo, variety of makers um, kind of catching up. So what they've done here, they've kind of stepped up a game. So the very top end model, the, the Pro Plus, has a, a 10 times optical zoom with a new periscope camera in it. Um, as well as a three times zoom. So it kind of has the scope to, you can pinch to zoom from, you know, super wide angle through to something roads and roads away and it'll look really close up. Um, to a greater extent you can get from pretty much anything that's, that's in a phone right now. So that's, that's the real kind of point of appeal from, from that one. And if people are still not put off by the, by the Google and they want, they like their P30 or, or other Huawei devices and they think right I want this this is you know this sounds good when when's it coming out how much is it going to cost um so three phones the uh the entry p40 would be 799 that's euros that's all they've announced it in so far from the 7th of April um there's no word on UK so we don't specifically know if that'll be carried over here or not then the pro is from 999 um same launch date and then the pro plus is uh 1399 and that i believe is still to be determined when it will hit the stores still to come dan and i talk about the new ipad pro it's slightly odd that kind of that, that kind of muscle memory that you've got isn't it that actually you can you know when you move across devices as many people do these days um you actually sort of have to switch into a different mode you know i i get that when i move from my Windows PC or my iPad to to my Mac because of because I can't touch the screen on my Mac whereas I can touch it on my Windows PC so it's a bit of a um, it's, it's, it is a, a different experience isn't it? I first met Spencer Hyman in the year 2000 when he asked me to join his team at Amazon and help launch the video game store in the UK. It was early days in the internet especially in retail and over the years Spencer and I have kept in regular contact as our paths took very different but similar routes. Spencer now runs CocoRunners.com, an online chocolate store that specialises in selling artisan chocolates from around the world, including offering a rather yummy subscription box to those that need a monthly fix. But whether it's Amazon or Coco Runners, the core issues have always been the same. How to make discovery on the internet possible and easy for everyone to enjoy. I started our conversation by asking him to give me a quick potted history of what he's been involved in so far in his illustrious career. Um, yeah, no, well, because we've known her for lots of time, and I'm a huge fan of yours. So, so um, my background is I read history at university a long, long, long time ago. Then I went to go and make Cabbage Patch dolls in Thailand, and then um, spent a little bit of time in Hong Kong, and then I spent six or seven years in Japan doing video games and also selling toys there before I came back to the UK. And when I was in the UK, I ended up being asked to launch Amazon's, originally it was the toy store in the UK, and then they put that on hold and asked me to start running their software, their video games, their electronics um, stores, which is obviously where you come in because you were the yep. editor of the video game store in the UK. And then after Amazon, I did a very brief bit of VC, which got me involved a bit with LinkedIn. Um, but then I also did something called Last.fm, where I was the chief operating officer. I then tried to do something like Last.fm inside the um, inside the art world, which didn't work particularly well. It's called Art Finder. It's still going on in a slightly different fashion. And then with a mate, Simon Pelthorpe, we both saw this opportunity 
um, to what we sort of call um, curated or guided discovery um, to try and help people find out things that they don't really necessarily know about on the web. Um, and one of the first that we started, because if you think about it, we'll talk more about this as we go through, but most things that people buy on the web, they actually already know they want before they go online. It's transactional, it's search-based, but there are lots right. of categories actually where you need a bit more advice and you need a bit more support. And a good example of that is um, something like gardening, where most people don't really know which plants to buy. Uh, other products can be stuff like wine, where in the end, most people just give up and just buy what's on offer. But craft chocolate, because it's got this plethora of different flavors and it's so difficult to navigate your way through, is a great example of what we sort of call a DJ service. And so that's what we launched. And it's still sort of, you know, going from strength to strength. And so looking quickly through that product history, a lot of it seems to be about big catalogs. It's about online and all the other stuff. And it's they all come across, as you just said, they all come across this same problem of discovery. Um, you know, Last FM tried that. Amazon obviously tries that on a daily basis. Uh, you obviously try that. How how hard is discovery on the web? And how do we go about solving it? Um, so I think it's phenomenally hard. I think that, you know, what, what sort of in a way made consumer products possible in the 20th century was, was a sort of accident, which was literally the soaps. And it literally was the ability to interrupt TV programs with 30 second, one minute ads where you could tell people about new products and new categories. And we don't have that anymore today. So it's harder and harder to do. Um, you know, there are different ways of doing it. Influencers do some of it. But the fundamental challenge is how do you show people new, interesting stuff? In some categories, it's actually relatively simple um, because you can use techniques like collaborative filtering or very, very smart people who like this, like that. Um, so music, for example, has done a pretty good job of that. Last FM did that. Echo Nest did that. You can argue that books has basically managed to do it too. Amazon does clearly a very, very good job of that too. But I think where the discovery challenge is really interesting and really different is if you've got something new, which it, 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 it's, um, it's the sort of cold start problem in technical terms, it's if there isn't anything else like this, how do you know who's going to be interested, how's, how people are going to like it? And the traditional way that people have solved this is by having um, trusted advisors or, for want of a better word, DJs. I mean, back in the day, the music industry was fantastic at this. You know, that is what the radio was brilliant at. You know, you listen to the radio. That's what you use to discover great new music. And, you know, your background, I think that's what you came out of originally when you were sort of, you know, for video games. That's ironically, I think, what was actually happening with lots of the video game magazines. Um, and, and, you know, when Amazon originally set up, you know, we had people like you, we had editors yeah. whose job it was to, you know, surface all that's great, all that's new, all that people would like going forward. And I think there's only so much you can do with, you know, people who liked this also like that. I think to get to the new stuff, it's a really, really big problem. And so how have you, how have you tried to, you know, obviously, as, as we've discussed in the past, it's that, you know, as an editor who's run a site, you know, we obviously try and Pocket Lint tries to give a, you know, a number of suggestions and, you know, our opinion on things like that. But from, you know, Cocoa Runners, how have you done that? Have you have you taken that that Amazon model from 20 years ago uh, when we were both there to to sort of do you have your own DJs of, of chocolate? Is that yourself? How, how do you go about trying to suggest 
new things to people or is it just is it algorithm based is it human based how, how, how does it work so i think there's probably three elements to it it's a really good question i think that um there's a little bit which is that if you tell us a bar that you like we have built you know sort of what we call the chocolate genome project whereby basically we look at all of the different aspects of any particular bar so everything from its melt its mouthfeel the aromas it has the intensity it has the style of chocolate it has and that's that's a relatively simple one um the second part to it is the more difficult one which you're alluding to which is the sort of playlist which is every month we send you four different bars of chocolate and the way we do that is we basically are always on the lookout for new makers and new bars from existing makers and for new beans. So we spend a lot of time working with the growers. To grow great cacao, you need great growers, you need heirloom cacao, and right. you can only make great bars if you've got great beans. So we spend a lot of time trying to find new bars from existing and new makers. And there's a small team of us of you know four or five who basically spend a lot of time tasting the bars. And before everybody sort of volunteers to do this as a job, I should say that it's not always that great. I mean, it does take time for people to learn to be very good at making bars. You know, if you get a bar from a great maker like Pump Street or Original Beans, you know it's going to be good. But if you sort of get a bar from, say, sort of, you know, some bit of Russia, it, it is a little bit of a Russian roulette as to what it's going to taste like. Um, right. But then I think the third problem is the most difficult one, actually, which is the, the, which is actually the customer acquisition challenge. Because that goes back to sort of this consumer products point that I was sort of making earlier, which is the most difficult issue is actually how do you find new customers who are going to like this? I mean, once we get a customer, they tend to really, really like the service and they gift it and they give it to other people. But actually explaining the, the concept and trying to get people to understand that actually, you know, chocolate has more flavor potential than anything, including red wine. That is really hard to do on the internet because, again, you know, internet advertising is primarily so far it's still a search transactional classified advertising like model. I suppose that's the you know the sense that at the moment majority of retailers are, are kind of going for this, just stocking more and more things, and and is that necessarily the right approach? Do you do you think well maybe you should stock less? and have you know greater a sense of what you're stocking is the right thing to stock or is it should just be like let's just you know walmart it and fill the rafters or amazon and fill the rafters as high as we can with you know just products that you don't even know that you want or even even heard of yeah i think it's a it, it, i mean i think there are lots of different models and it's pretty tricky to sort of work through the different ones um i mean you know if we if we talk quickly just about how it actually happens in the supermarket with chocolate what, what tends to happen with chocolate is that, you know, if you look at people who make shopping lists before they go into the shops, you know, chocolate is going to be on, you know, less than 5% of people's lists. And yet the number of people who walk out of the supermarket with a bar mm. of chocolate is, you know, 20 to 35%, depending on, you know, the country and the time of the year, et cetera. So what tends to happen is, is that people just buy what's on offer. So, you know, they look at, what's on offer at the tills at that point and that encourages them to buy now that's going to have some very interesting consequences when people do more and more buying online because you won't be able to or maybe you will but it's going to put a huge new strain on you know where what what's the budget for end caps etc but i think that 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 
you know, the, the alternative approach for certain products is sort of what I sort of call the Costco approach. So I right. think people who shop at Costco trust Costco and they trust in particular the Kirkland brand to be very good value and to be good and they trust them to do that. But that's for what you'd sort of call staples. So you would probably trust Costco to do that for ketchup, although you might still go for Heinz ketchup. But, you know, Costco won't stock 50 different varieties of ketchup. It'll probably just have its own label and Heinz, and that will yeah. be it. Um, now, that works fine for when people are very happy to stick with the same product day in, day out. Um, so, you know, it, it, it may well work fine for soft drinks if they're buying either Coke or Pepsi. It may well work fine for tea if they're, you know, wedded to PG tips. It does not work well for a product like Kraft Chocolate, where the fun actually is in the diversity. And the, you know, the model that I think works best is still the, 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 the sort of the, the, the DJ model. It's the John Peel, where you basically want somebody to help you find great new stuff. And then you can carry on buying the stuff that they've recommended that you really, really liked from them. And so do you feel that experts are the, are the key to certainly your business or certainly a lot of businesses rather than just relying on sales data and, you know, if you bought this, buy this? Yeah, I do think that's true. I think for a couple of different reasons. I think one reason why it's so important is that you also need to educate and entertain people. So right. a lot of it, you know, fashion is another example of this. Um, you know, fashion, obviously, it has to look good on the person or not, as the case may be. But what you're really buying into is the story. And, you know, the, the, the secret to most crafts and artisan is not only must it taste good, but you also have to be able to sort of unwrap and get behind the story of the grower, of the maker, understand why this bar, for example, you know, is great tasting, but also that every time you buy it, you know, a tree gets planted in the rainforest. So I think it's not just a question of recommending it. You've got to explain the reason and give the background story. There's a sort of entertainment bit to it as well, you know, just like there was on radio. It's that idea of, of it's more than just a food stuff. It's there's a, as you say, there's a story behind it and therefore a, a reasoning why you've gone local or why you've gone small or why you've, you know, why you've included that chocolate in the box to begin with. Yeah, I think that's the secret. I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the interesting analogies inside here is that if you look at what's happened to museums um, over the last, you know, 30, 40 years, the, the, the rise in exhibitions, which have got a clear theme and a story, shows that it's much easier for people to understand and appreciate when things are put into context. You know, we didn't have exhibitions in the UK before the 70s, you know, King Tut was the really the big first one. And since then, you know, everybody now does these blockbuster exhibitions. And the great thing about them is, is they do tell a story. The ironic thing about them is, is that, you know, you don't necessarily have to spend the 10 to 20 quid seeing those pictures because they're going to be back on the walls of different museums where there'll be far less people watching them fairly soon. But you won't have the story. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, one of the things, you know, you obviously now run a subscription service. Um, we're seeing a massive boom in subscription services over the last couple of years, whether it's subscriptions to chocolate or whether it's socks or, you know, probably more relevant to people that they've been aware of is streaming services. You know, Disney plus has just launched in the UK uh, and things like that. Do you, do you get to feel that we're at peak subscription 
or do you think there's still plenty of 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 room for the market to grow for for suddenly you know the average household to have like 10 13 subscriptions or something yeah so that's a really interesting question so i think the first thing to try and do is to sort of segment the different subscriptions and understand why and where they've come from so i think media subscriptions i think that i don't know how many people will be able to go and extend to but clearly there's a massive in inverted commas first mover network effects you know home screen effect in all of those businesses and then on top of that there's all the content um but i think underpinning all that there's a little bit more which i think is you know if you look at disney's real strength actually i think it's not just in the franchises not just in the characters i think it's actually more in the theme parks but Maybe we'll part that for a sec because we'll go back to talk about the other subscriptions, which there are too. So I think broadly there are sort of if you sort of split subscriptions into two segments, there's sort of what you can sort of call the the, the razor blade or the loo paper or the daily utility subscription, right. um, where you know which I think Amazon does brilliantly, as would be expected, where you know basically you just say give me this product, you know, every month, every week, every, every other month, whatever it is that you want. And then I think on the other side, there is the discovery um, subscription services. And I think the, the, the really, the, the reason why those services came about, I think is, is it's a sort of ironic one, which is that it, uh, those services are sold because they justify a very high cost of customer acquisition. So if you take a product like a food delivery service or a menu delivery service, um, you know, that's not something which someone's going to look for and search for online. And most things, most categories of e-commerce up until the last five years were for products and categories where people knew what they wanted. They went to Google or increasingly they actually just go to Amazon. The boring stuff. Yeah, well, the, the stuff that you know you want. Now, stuff that you don't necessarily know you want, like, you know, a meal delivery service, actually, the, the sort of, you know, the background story to this is sort of slightly strange, which is, as far as I understand it, is that um, the charity guys about 15 years ago, 10 years ago, were all getting lampooned for the amount of money they were spending on non-core issues. So one of the things that they did was they subcontracted out acquiring new customers or acquiring new donors to right. teams of ex-students, ex-actors, and everything else like that. And if you look at a lot of these, you know, if you think back and if you look at a lot of these food delivery services or these clothing cleaning services or any of those delivery networks, yes, yeah, sure, they use Facebook a bit, but actually the other thing they did was they literally used doors knocking, people on the streets walking, you know, handing out flyers at tube stations and people literally knocking on your door, offering you a new flower discovery service. And I think there is definitely a limit to how long that can continue for, because, right. you know, there's a limit to how many different ones of those you want. Um, you know, I think, I mean, I hope that chocolate is slightly different because it's a bit more like, you know, the wine society. Uh, you know, or, or even something like the Sunday Times Wine Club, Lathwaite's, because there are certain products where you need and you want the curation and you want the advice um, for people to supply. And I think that whether or not they're really subscription services or whether or not they're just, you know, more like trusted recommendation services, 
is a sort of moot point. I suppose really the, the final question I have, which is more of a fun one, is um, if 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 I'm going to start, I mean, I already subscribe to your chocolate service, so that's helpful in itself. But if you were to suggest someone to someone that was starting, how what is a good bar of chocolate to get someone into it? I think honestly, the best thing to do is just to sign up to the monthly delivery service, and we're going to give you know a pocket lint code anyhow. So if you use pocket lint ten anyone will get their first box at half price. And that's the best way to do it. Because actually, the great thing about chocolate is that actually what you always want to do is have two bars on the go at the same time. Because one of the strange things about food and flavor and taste is that we're not very good at articulating it and describing it. So it's not like, um, for example, when you see a picture or when you read a book, people can tell you, they can summarize the book quite quickly. Most people actually really struggle. It's literally on the tip of their tongue to describe a flavor. And without being able to describe it and articulate it, it's actually quite hard sometimes to appreciate it. Now, one way around that is to actually have two or three bars of chocolate with different textures, different flavor notes, different mouthfeels on the go at the same time. And then we also give you the tasting notes and you'll gradually get into being able to understand, appreciate it yourself. Because once you've got the vocab, and once you're comfortable using it, it just becomes more interesting and more, you can appreciate it that much more. But in the interim, the quick sort of way around it is to always have two bars on the go at the same time, which is the other reason why we give you that. We give you a pouch to basically store your bars of chocolate in so that if you unwrap them and you can't get them back into the packaging, you've at least got that to store it in for the next few days because you won't need a whole bar in one sitting. Now, to confirm what Spencer has just wonderfully offered the listeners of this Pocket Lint podcast, you can get £10 off your first monthly box, i.e. half price, if you don't cancel for three months thereafter by using the code POCKETLINT10 when you go to cocorunners.com. So now we're going to come to the normal time of uh, the show where we I sit and talk to one of the team about what they've been reviewing. But actually, this week, I've been the one that's been reviewing. I've had the new iPad Pro, a 12.9-inch version, which comes with lots of different new functionalities and features. Uh, and so joining me to discuss this and my experience and just to try and answer and flesh out some of the questions that we pinged around the office is Dan Grabham. So what's it like using the iPad with a trackpad then? I think this is the biggest uh, spin. And and the great thing about this is that it's not just restricted to the new iPad Pros that were launched this month. So it's actually an update to 13.4, which means that if you've got a current iPad Pro or even an iPad Air um, that you've been using for the last year or two years or however long you've owned it for, you can use the trackpad as well. That aside, um, it was was quite different. it's suddenly I've been using it. The Apple launched this launched the iPad, and then they said, "Oh, for iPad Pro users, you've got this thing called a Magic Keyboard, which is a three hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred fifty pound keyboard that's backlit, comes with a USB charging socket, so you can power something else at the same time. Uh, it makes the the, the 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 iPad look like an iMac, effectively, because it floats across it. That isn't out yet. That's not out till May. So I've been using it with a Magic Trackpad two although you can use it with a mouse or you can get, uh, I think, Logitech and Bridge and a couple of other people have got got keyboards coming. It was very laptop-like. Um, it, I, I've, I'm a big iPad user. 
iPad Pro user, um, and I always take it when I go on the uh, take it with me when I'm on the go. And the one thing I've never been able to do is spreadsheets because, like, I have to do a lot of spreadsheets through Pocket Lint, but you can't do them on the iPad because it's just, it's just dabbing your finger at the screen is ridiculous. Now, obviously, you've got a cursor, you can spin it around, um, you know, and go from cell to cell. What's that actually like? In you know, does it look like a like a mouse pointer on a on a Windows or a Mac, or it does it is it is it slightly different than that? No, it's a it's a little circle um, that as soon as you interact with your trackpad or your mouse, it obviously appears. So when you're when it's when that's not happening, it, nothing happens, um, and you can then obviously move that around the the screen as you would normally. When you get to an icon, so say if you're on the home page. When you get to uh, an app icon, the app icon suddenly like jumps out a little bit, so it makes it slightly bigger, so you can see that you've hovered over it, and then it just jumps to the next icon and the next icon and the next icon. So you don't have to have that same fidelity that you would on a mouse when clicking something. Um, and so when you like in a menu system, for example, if you go straight to the top of the iPad, it will hover over, um, you know, hover over certain bits, and then it will automatically the 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 circle expands to include that whole menu button. So again, you don't have to have the fidelity to click on the right part of the icon to do it. It just the whole button becomes the click. Um, and then there's, I've been to say, I've been using it on a trackpad. So there's the usual gestures that you've come to use on on a MacBook with the, with the large trackpad there. So you know, three finger swipes up, down, left, right, all do different things of moving between apps or going to that like helicopter view so you can see all the apps available and, and things so, like that. So so it is very similar to using to to the tra- the trackpad gestures you get elsewhere basically. Two scroll two finger scrolling and you know two fingers is the secondary click uh, and things like that. There is some settings where you can adapt the speed if it's I found that the base speed was a little bit too fast. I'd move the trackpad I'd move my finger across the trackpad and it was just a bit too much motion um so I'd miss the, the design, you know, the area I was going for. I slowed it down slightly for me, um, and that seemed to that seemed to make a big difference. And in terms of the apps, I mean, presumably the the, the Apple apps are fully integrated with this. But what about third party app support? At the moment, it seems to be. I, I haven't found something that is. It's just it's a system level. The trackpad thing is a system level approach. So it's not that suddenly you get into an app and it it won't work. It's just as you move the. And you can still, I think the problem, the biggest problem I've had, I've been using it for a week now, the biggest problem I've had is just the memory of using my finger on the screen. It's slightly odd, that kind of that, that kind of muscle memory that you've got, isn't it? That actually you can, you know, when you move across devices, as many people do these days, um, you actually sort of have to switch into a different mode. You know, I, I get that when I move from my windows pc or my ipad to to my mac because of because i can't touch the screen on my mac whereas i can touch it on my windows pc so it's a bit of a um it's, it's, it is a, a different experience isn't it yeah and i have I, i'm gonna be i probably shouldn't admit this but i have i have jabbed my jabbed my finger against my macbook uh screen from time to time when i've been working on the ipad because then you suddenly like what why is it wouldn't work that that almost brings us on to talking about the difference between a mac laptop and 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 the ipad you know what who who is this for versus a mac um you know reconciling that difference in our minds actually i was thinking about the other day um you know for 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 some for some people they won't have ever used a mac they'll have only used an ipad so, I mean, for those people, it makes complete sense to take things on to, to a next stage, doesn't it? 
we're obviously creators so we use you know a variety of different devices to do different things and for the majority of people they don't they just sit there you know at home they use an ipad for uh watching netflix surfing the web maybe writing the odd letter for those people the ipad makes perfect sense the struggles i've had are things like um sort of web interfaces which still struggle to cope with even though they've made it a desktop interface you know desktop browser there's still some some program you know some web applications that just don't like uh, it being on an ipad and they get confused by that um and therefore sometimes it's easier still to do things on on a mac and it's quicker to do it on a mac um mm. i think with a but you, you're right there are people that would never have used a mac never used a windows pc laptop or whatever and this is their first computing experience and they won't come to it as in the same sort of historical memory muscle kind of ways of doing things that perhaps you and i have, have experienced of having used computers for 20 odd years so i, th- I think this certainly goes a long way to uh, to building on an experience that is is as laptop like for but sort of on the go touch based um i still don't you know i don't think apple have got it still 100 percent. i think there's still plenty of room for them to improve and, and move on these things um you know there is still some of this multitasking stuff is is useful but it's still quite clunky in the sense yes. that you've got to remember which which to bit to drag and which bit to slide over and all those kind of things it it feels almost that they just need to say okay We've got to a point with the iPad OS that you can have a a desktop. Um, you know, you can have things. It doesn't have to be a mobile phone app screen. You know, you can have things interacting, and you can have resizable windows. It doesn't have to necessarily conform to, you know, a third of the window, a quarter of the window, or what have you, or things hovering over the top. Um, it's getting there though. This, you know, this iteration certainly from a software perspective is much better. Um, you know, and what it offers with the trackpad support and things like that than it was, you know, when the iPad Pro first launched and certainly was before, you know, all those years ago when the iPad first launched. Yeah, definitely. And and it's the, the it's those it's that that kind of moving beyond the two side by side apps scenario, isn't it? That that's that that's the kind of area that hasn't quite quite got to grips with yet. Obviously you can have slide over where you have the, the sort of third app on top. But even so, it's 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 not quite. I mean, for anyone multitasking in in four or five apps, it's still it's still not there, is it? But I, you know, I I, I do think that will come, and it's going to be really interesting to see how it pans out. Yeah, and I think you know ultimately, you know, what's fascinating here is we haven't really talked about the hardware at all. Um, it's because there isn't really any hardware that's updated that will make a difference to people's lives. The uh, the the the, the new iPad Pro. A12Z, which is an upgrade to the A12X, um, but I couldn't. I haven't noticed any difference whatsoever. And there is a lidar sensor in there, which has made the Measure app now fantastically easy and accurate to use. But it's the only app that is using that sensor, and I suspect we won't see more on that until after WWDC or even later in the year. Well, that's it for this week's show. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Until next time, pip pip. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.